The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Human beings are mesmerized by stories of endurance. Uh, One of my favorite books of all time, which was later made into a movie, is Louis Zamperini's memoir, Unbroken a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. I remember reading that book and just being stunned over and over again that this was not fiction, that this actually occurred. I mean, there are three major sections in Zamperini's story, each of which would make an amazing standalone book. I mean, first of all, he goes to the Olympics and competes as a runner in in 1936 in Berlin under Hitler's watchful gaze. Last of all, after the war, he goes to a Billy Graham crusade, hears the gospel, gets saved, and lives the rest of his life for Jesus. But it's what happens in the middle that has captivated so many people. He after Pearl Harbor, enlisted in World War II as a a fighter pilot. And he flew as a fighter pilot until 1943 when his plane was shot down over the Pacific Ocean. He was listed as dead. And so as he was there on this makeshift raft surrounded by thousands of miles of sea with no help on the way, subject to enemy attacks, He's there, and in the story, you read about how he's, he's, he, he manages somehow to survive thirst, starvation, leaping sharks, enemy attacks for 47 days until he finally spots land. His, his hope revives, and when he reaches the shore, he is met by the Japanese who capture him, and then he proceeds to spend the next two years in a prisoner of war camp until the allies finally come and liberate him. It's an amazing story of endurance. But this morning, we're going to be thinking about an endurance story that's actually even more miraculous than Zamperini's. Except in this story, the true heroes are not the ones who persevere, but the one who preserves Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. As you're making your way there, let's just get our our bearings. The the New Testament, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's, that's fine. I hope you've grabbed one. If not, we have some more on the back table there. But the New Testament 
begins with four, essentially, biographies of Jesus, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have Luke's volume two, the book of Acts, in which he recounts the birth and growth of the Christian movement in the first few decades after the ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. But most of the rest of the New Testament is actually a series of letters, 13 of which were written by the Apostle Paul, and nine of which were written to ordinary local churches, like River City Baptist Church, and here, like the church in Philippi. It's about three decades after the ascension of Jesus, and about one decade after Paul has helped to establish this church in Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. But he's no longer with them. By the way, if you want to read the backstory about how the church in Philippi was born, you can read that in Acts chapter 16. But he's no longer with them now. He's, at this point, way off in Rome, chained up in a cell, awaiting his verdict. And he's recently, though, gotten a report from a fellow named Epaphroditus, whom we'll hear about later in the letter. He's gotten a report on how the Philippian church is doing. And so he sits down with parchment in his prison cell, to write a letter to that church. And that's what we still have a record of today, 2,000 years later. This morning, we're going to focus on chapter 1 of this letter in verses 3 through 11. And here's what I think is the main idea of the passage. And therefore, if I'm doing this correctly, will be the main idea of the message. The main idea. God's grace is a fire that warms us to fellow believers and a power that both sustains us to the end and transforms us along the way. God's grace is a fire that warms us to fellow believers and a power that both sustains us to the end and transforms us along the way. We're going to think about this fire and this power with, as we look with Paul in three directions. We're going to look with Paul in these verses in three directions. First, outward, that's verses three to six. Second, inward, that's verses seven and eight. And third, upward, that's verses nine to 11. First, we're going to look outward. Second, inward. Third, upward. So first, looking outward. Look there at verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now, before we see why Paul is motivated to do this, to speak like just this, just notice that he is already doing this. In other words, verses 3 and 4 are not aspirational. He's saying, this is what actually happens when I think of you when you come to mind, the, the surface of my heart are not like, is not like undisturbed waters. No, waves begin to swell. Waves of what? Well, verse 3, gratitude. Verse 4, joy. Well, why? Why does Paul find it so easy to pray for these Philippian believers with joy? Verse 5, because of something. It's because of something. Namely, your partnership in the gospel from the first day, about a decade prior, from the first day until now. 
The word partnership here is actually the the Greek word koinonia, sometimes translated fellowship. And in the broader context of this letter, we're going to see that this idea of koinonia, partnership, is robust. It's multidimensional. It involves doctrinal alignment, missional focus, relational warmth, financial support, even suffering. And Paul is brimming with gratitude to God for it all. This reality of gospel partnership is is why we do what we just did in the pastoral prayer, why we pray for another local church in Richmond every Sunday by name. We don't just pray for any group that fancies itself a church. We pray for those who, like us, cherish and preach the gospel. And the reason we do this is because, and this is good news, not bad news, the kingdom of God in Richmond, Virginia is so much bigger than RCBC. Our driving ambition here is not to increase our market share, our brand. It's to lock arms with other churches, Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, other denominations, so long as they cherish and proclaim that same gospel. I mean, let's be honest. Church plants are famous for a lot of things. They are not famous for their Catholicity. Now, I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism. I'm talking about lower C Catholicity, the ability to celebrate diverse expressions of Christ's universal body. But if this city that we love is going to be reached for King Jesus, then we're going to need all kinds of churches to do it. We're just honored to play a small part in what God is up to here in Richmond. We're not the only show in town. Let's never act like we are. Well, if verse 5 is, is what Paul is glad about, this partnership in the gospel that he and the Philippians shared and that we share with other outposts of heaven here in Richmond, if verse 5 is what he's glad about, verse 6 is what he's sure about. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is one of the most precious verses in your Bible. You should, you should memorize it this week. You can do it. It's, it's a wonderful verse to commit to memory, to internalize, so that it comes to mind when you need it. Paul is confident. Notice here in verse 6, Paul is confident right now in the present because of two things. He's confident in the present because of what God has commenced in the past and will complete in the future. And that is, what, what is that thing that he's commenced and will complete? It's the work of his grace, his intervening, transforming, sustaining grace. There are no weak links in this divine chain. I mean, you've got to understand this if you've put your faith in Jesus. Perhaps you've heard before big theological terms like justification, sanctification, glorification. I mean, whole libraries are devoted to each one. I'm barely scratching the surface. But here's a simple way to remember the difference. You may want to write this down. Justification means you were saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification 
you are being saved from the power of sin. Glorification, you will be saved from the presence of sin. So to help you remember that, I'll just tell you the differences are were, are, and will be penalty, power, and presence. Justification, you were saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, you are being saved from the power of sin. Glorification, you will be saved from the presence of sin. The God of heaven and earth, friends, finishes what he starts. He is not like us. I mean, we're only halfway through January, and for some of you, your New Year's resolutions are a distant memory already. But if God commences something, he will complete it. That doesn't mean that the in-between is easy. I mean, the in-between is a marathon of a journey, which is why over and over again, the Bible makes eye contact with us and summons us to endure. Now, what exactly is God's role in our race and our role and how do they relate? Well, that's a theme we'll return to in the letter. We'll think about it especially in chapter 2. But what you've got to grasp here at the outset is who has the decisive grip. The decisive grip. See, if if I'm with one of my really young children and I'm, say, walking through the mall, we'll be holding hands, but that's going to just look like me probably putting out a finger as they hold on. But the moment we leave and enter the parking lot, you better believe we'll still be holding hands, but I won't just be holding out a finger. I will grab their hand. Now, in both scenarios, we're holding hands, but only in one is my grip decisive. And your walk with Christ is such that, yes, you are called to cling tightly to him, but Ultimately, your security is based on the fact not that you are clinging tightly to him, but that he is clinging tightly to you. His grip is decisive, which is why Paul can have such certainty. He doesn't say at the beginning of verse 6, I hope. No, he says, I am sure, I am confident that God will complete what he started because his grip is decisive. Looking outward looking outward at God's good work in the Philippians. Number two, looking inward. Verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. It is right for me, he says. It's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Almost as if it would be wrong for him not to feel this way for them. And the feeling is right for two reasons, according to verse 7. First, Paul says, because the Philippians don't just reside in Philippi, they also reside in him, in his very heart. He treasures them. And the second reason why it's right for him to feel this way comes next. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, here it is, all of you share in God's grace with me. All of you share in God's grace with me. Again, it's a form of that same word, koinonia. I deeply feel for you, and it's fitting because 
You reside in my very heart and you partake and feast with me on the most important reality of the universe, God's one-way grace. He spreads it, we share it. Now, I wanna be clear about something because this phrase, sharing in God's grace, partaking in God's grace does not apply to everyone, and surely in a room this size, it doesn't apply to every one of you. We're not born sharing in this grace, this unearned, unevoked, unmerited favor of God. I mean, some of you have not yet experienced this grace for the simple reason that you have not yet humbled yourself to receive it. I mean, the Bible is clear that, that we are separated from God. Our idolatry and our rebellion, which are just big words, ways of saying that we have lived for ourselves rather than for Him, those things have created a yawning chasm between us and God. But the good news of the gospel, the reason we exist as a church is to let you know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to bridge that gap. And this grace isn't just a floating abstraction. It's a person. He has a name. In the person of Jesus, God provided the solution to our sin. He lived the life that we failed to live. He died the death we deserved to die. Three days later, he rose again in victory. He is alive and well and is coming back to judge. But in the meantime, while there's still time, he loves sinners. He loves to rescue rebels. And all they have to do, all you have to do in order to get in on this is to turn away from your sin and trust in him. He is ready and willing to treat the unworthy better than they deserve. It's like when he sees faith, forgiveness is on a hair trigger. And you can make yesterday Friend, you can make yesterday the last day in your life that you weren't a partaker in the grace of God. You don't have to embark on a pilgrimage or a long journey of working your way into God's favor. No, it's a gift and it's free and it'll change your life and it can start today if you embrace it, if you embrace Him. I mentioned earlier that I'll be standing at the door after the service. I would love to talk to you about that, if you have any questions. And this room is filled with people who would love nothing more than to talk to you, not just about what that means, but about how that very news has transformed their own life. Verse eight, God can testify. He, he appeals here to his divine witness. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, this whole passage is just dripping with Paul's heart. I mean, we struggle to feel this way about others in the best of times, on the brightest of days. Paul is incarcerated under the imperial might of Rome his days are numbered, and yet he can't stop this flood of feeling for this church he loves. I mean, just listen to his enthusiasm. <laughs> he, he, he is not into understatement here. These are sweeping words. Verse 3, I thank my God, how often? 
every time I remember you. Verse four, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Verse seven again, all of you share in God's grace with me. Verse eight, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Oh, friends, Christianity is more than a feeling religion, but it is not less. God crafted you in his image to have emotions, affections, and he did it so that you would be able to more richly experience and more richly enjoy both him and one another. This kind of intimate language might make some of us feel a little uncomfortable because, frankly, it's the kind of language that we would more naturally apply to our natural family. And if you have a good family situation, praise God, and, and that impulse is understandable. But no matter what your family situation is, no matter how great your natural family situation is, when you became a Christian, you were adopted into a more ultimate family with far deeper bonds and far more durable bonds, ones that will last for eternity. I mean, do you think this way? Do you feel this way about your church family? I mean, if we could examine your heart, the depth of your affection for your brothers and sisters here, at RCBC, would what we see in any way match what we learn about Paul's own heart here? As the great African Bishop Augustine put it so many centuries ago, moral character is assessed not by what a man knows, but by what he loves. Moral character is assessed not by what a man knows, but by what he loves. Now, you may, you may think, what, what am I supposed to do if I, if I just simply, I'm not there. I, I just don't feel that way. Well, first I would ask, when was the last time that you specifically asked God to endear you, to, to endear your church family to you? I mean, maybe your heart is cool because you haven't yet asked God to warm it. Another very practical way to grow in your affection for the church, and I mentioned this last Sunday night, but it's, it's to pray through the membership direct, directory. You know what that thing is, right? That's basically a family photo album. Now, granted, all we have are headshots, but everyone is there and accounted for, and it's the people that you, if you're a member of this church, it's the people you have committed to and are responsible for. And don't forget, as you're praying through the membership directory, to thank God for them. Yes, intercede on their behalf, but also just give praise to God as Paul does in these verses. I mean, do you, do you want to sever the root of suspicion, the root of bitterness? Give thanks. Resentment and bitterness cannot sprout and cannot grow in the soil of gratitude. One more thing you can do is, is, to, is to warm your heart before you come to church. I mean, we, we talk a lot here about the power of transparency. 
But that's not only about confessing sin. But we also should be transparent in our affection, in our enthusiasm for one another. I mean, sometimes in the car on the way to church, we have to give ourselves a pep talk. We have to pray ourselves up. We have to resolve, this morning is not about me. It's not gonna be about me. It's about Jesus and his people, and I'm gonna find a way to encourage some of them. I mean, I don't know who it's gonna be, but I am not gonna just walk in there, grab a service guide, a cup of coffee, sit down, endure a service, and then head out. My task is not to just to do those things. My task is so much greater. Beloved, when you say something like, hey, it's good to see you, think about why it's actually good to see them. Because you both have a stake and a share in the unifying grace of God. And remembering that, remembering who it is that you're coming here to fellowship with and worship with, Remembering that is going to prompt curiosity. It's, it's going to prompt you to ask questions like, hey, hey, how can I serve you? How can I pray for you? Can I pray for you right now? Hey, I've noticed this evidence of grace in your life, and I just wanted you to know it's really been encouraging me. Keep it up. I mean, feeling gratitude for someone and not expressing it makes no sense. Feeling gratitude for someone and not expressing it is like wrapping a present and not giving it. God's love for us, brothers and sisters, is charged. It's it's not just this heavenly formality. God's love for us is charged with incalculable affection and warmth. Oh, let's foster a culture in our young church of encouragement and joy among ourselves and among those that we welcome into our midst. So Paul looks, he first looks outward at God's good work in the Philippians. Then he looks inward to his own affection for them. But finally, he turns his gaze upward. And that's point three, looking upward. In verses nine to 11, Paul moves from speaking to the Philippians about God to speaking to God about the Philippians. It's not often that we get to eavesdrop on Paul to actually hear his prayers, to hear not just that he's praying, but actually what he's praying. In his excellent book, Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Don Carson writes about this prayer, Few of Paul's prayers have greater potential to help us surmount the hurdles of spiritual dryness and lack of faith than this one. Well, what does he pray? It begins in verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, if you stare at that phrasing for just more than a few seconds, you will start to feel something counterintuitive because Paul, in this verse, marries what we are so tempted in our culture to divorce. On the one hand, love, and on the other hand, knowledge, discernment. 
mean, there's no way around it. The inescapable assumption of the Bible is that real love accords with truth. And if it doesn't, it's not worthy of the name love. See, the world just dilutes it. The the, the world doesn't say we don't believe in love. The, The world just hollows it out. It reduces it either to just sentimentality or to just mere acceptance, affirmation. But Scripture's vision of love, see, see, the world will try to make Bible-believing Christians think that they are the narrow ones, the reductionistic ones, but actually, it is the world's perception of love that is so thin, that is so one-dimensional, that is so, frankly, boring. The Bible's vision of love is richer and more textured and larger. See, real love is informed. That's what verse 9 is saying. Real love is informed by knowledge and by discernment and by truth. In other words, it accords with reality. We know this intuitively. If if you're in a relationship with someone, you don't convince them of your love for them by giving them a gift that they don't like. That doesn't make them think that you really know them. That's love not according to knowledge. No, you express the fact that you really love them by giving them a gift that they would love because you have listened and you know them. Your love for them accords with what is true. Notice also that Paul is not only praying that they would love. He's he's not just saying, I'm praying for you that you would love. He's also himself loving them by praying for them. Charles Spurgeon once said, no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. And Paul is telling them that's precisely what he is doing. He is loving them by praying for them. Oh, beloved, don't just shoot up prayers for people. Let them know you have done so. And so often we hear words like, I'll be praying for you, but in our hardest moments, our darkest moments, our loneliest moments, it it can be easy for any of us to think, is anyone actually remembering me? Is anyone actually praying for me? Pray for people and let them know you are. Now, why is Paul praying verse 9? Like, why is he asking God to make the Philippians excel in this sort of solid, informed, truth-shaped love? Well, here's why. Verse 10, so that. That's a very important little phrase in your Bible. So that. It's a purpose statement. Paul is praying this for them so that they may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the love of verse 9 is not an end in itself. It's a means for being positioned to discern what is best, which is another interesting phrase, isn't it? Not the ability to discern what is right. I think in some ways we'd almost prefer that phrase because it would be more clear cut, right? We, We like to know what the moral rules are. Just tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. We'd prefer maybe for him to say, so that we would be able to discern what is right. But no, it's discern what is best, which is not always obvious. This is a prayer for wisdom, 
for knowing what to do in the vast majority of life circumstances when the moral rules don't make the decision before you obvious. This could be big things. Do I take this job? Do I move to this place? Do I marry this person? It could be little things. Do I spend money here or there? Do I watch this or that? Do I invest in this person or that one? Living in a fallen world, it it requires extraordinary skill, which is another way of saying extraordinary discernment. And this is not just a prayer for wisdom, but also for excellence. Paul doesn't just content himself with praying for what is acceptable, for what is passable. No, he is praying for what is ideal. He wants the Philippians to keep preserving, keep abounding, keep growing, keep resisting the downward pull of the status quo. As Carson writes, Paul's prayer spells the death of entrenched mediocrity, of smug self-satisfaction, of contentment with our own excuses. Flip to chapter 3 with me and, and look at what Paul says about himself. Philippians 3, starting in verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like someone deeply committed to mediocrity? That is a vision for spiritual excellence. Paul is not praying anything for the Philippians that he is not striving for himself. And beloved, this kind of single-minded focus has everything to do. This kind of resolute focus has everything to do with where you set your mind. You will simply not succeed in the Christian life. You will not succeed in the Christian life if you try to float your way through it. Your love will not abound. It won't be informed. It won't be discerning. It'll bear no fruit unless, unless you are vigilant to fight that gravitational downward pull toward the status quo and to lift your eyes above what is ordinary, above what is mediocre, and fix them on what is excellent and true. We're going to see this theme appear again in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. And the result of this resolve will be, verse 10, the end of verse 10, that you'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
for the day of Christ. That means with a view to that final day. That is, pursuing holiness and excellence this day because you haven't lost sight of that day. And there's a further result, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness here is akin to the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I said earlier that bitterness cannot sprout in the, in the soil of gratitude. Well, these virtues do sprout. They do grow in the soil of a blameless heart. They will, you won't see them coming out of the soil of a bitter heart, but you will see them coming out of the soil of a pure and blameless one. And Paul says the whole crop, the whole harvest comes through Jesus Christ. He is the power. He is the means. But the goal the end is not finally your holiness or your fruitfulness. As important as those things are, that's not ultimately why Paul is on his knees in this prison cell. The ultimate thing for which he is asking is that God would look great. Look at those final words of verse 11, to the glory and praise of of God. This is the ultimate end for which God created the world and for which he created you. And it's the fuel for every single aspect of this prayer. Abounding love is for the glory of God. A wise and discerning heart is for the glory of God. A pure and blameless heart is for the glory of God. Bearing righteous fruit is for the glory of God. Our entire existence and purpose as individuals and as a church is to not settle for mediocrity. It's to make much of God in this brief life he has given us. Well, in conclusion, I I cannot improve on how Don Carson in that book, Praying with Paul, captures this dynamic, explosive potential that is embedded in a prayer like this. I mean, this is not a tame prayer. By the way, in this quote I'm about to read, Carson references revival. He's using it in the older sense of that word to refer to inner spiritual renewal accomplished by the Holy Spirit, not to the kind of thing that we can try to schedule or engineer according to our own plans. Carson writes, and I'll quote him at length. When Paul prays this prayer, he is praying for nothing less than revival. He is praying that Christians might be right now what we ought to be, what we certainly one day will be. It does not take much reading of the history of revivals to discover that when true revival dawns, resentments are dissolved. When revival comes, self-promotion is seen to be ugly and withers away. When revival comes, men and women are concerned to be holy. They are serious about integrity. They embrace genuine self-denial and learn to love. 
When revival comes, our worrying sense of unreality disappears and heaven seems more real and certainly more important than this transient world order. When revival comes, worship is no longer an exercise, but one of the chief characteristics of our lives. Buffoonery, gimmicks, and entertainment fade away. The day of Jesus Christ seems to draw near. Out of this fresh experience of the grace of God powerfully working in our lives, evangelism becomes not only a passion, but immeasurably more fruitful. The Western church needs nothing more. The Western church needs nothing more urgently than groups of believers, unknown, unsought, privately, faithfully, without promotion or fanfare, covenanting together to seek God's face, praying urgently for what is best as we contemplate the day of Jesus Christ, praying, in short, for revival. What would the end of these things be? God is sovereign and full of compassion. Who knows what he might do? These opening words to the Philippians are not trite They are substantive and soaring. Paul moves us from earth all the way up to heaven and from the beginning of God's work in our lives all the way to the day when the finishing touches will be complete. This is the ultimate endurance story going on in the universe. And it's far more impressive than what happened with Louis Zamperini in World War II. And the hero of this endurance story is our faithful God. Despite our sins, despite our struggles, despite our enemy, we can rest and endure because he, not us, he is the one authoring and perfecting our faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that all of us in this room would bow the knee to Jesus Christ and endure to the end. Lord, we pray that 10,000 years from now, we would be able to have a reunion in glory and that everyone in this room would be present and accounted for because we clung tightly to you and we trusted all along the way that you were clinging even more tightly to us. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.